You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and not Rick this time. Again, he's, he's not Rick more than he's Rick. Also, by the way, he is not SEO Wizard Rick anymore. He is SEO Kingpin Rick from now on because he did this epic cosplay of Kingpin and I'm going to get him to post in the crowdfunding nurse community. He looked completely badass. I just have to say. It was good. He'll never, he'll never hear this. So he'll never know that I gave him an, a compliment like that. Nobody tell him. Instead of Rick, we actually have with us Samuel Steele. He runs the Tabletop Hub and Should You Back It YouTube channels. Welcome to the show, Samuel. Thank you for having me. Just give us a little bit of history. How did you get into, into YouTube covering games? And why did, you know, why did you go into this should you back it you know, video style? It's very interesting. Yeah. And also, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so listen, I'll, I'll give you the kind of the, the long, lengthy version. Uh, I have been working in the film industry for the past 10 years, which has been lovely. But I think one of the, the big things, and I'm sure most of, of you and, and especially some of the folks who are going to be listening to this as well, whenever you've been uh, working, whenever you're you're working in a creative field and that's your nine to five and it's your day job, we get into these these jobs because we like to create things generally uh, and we like to see the finished product and get them out there and let people see it and enjoy it and all those lovely things. Whenever you're working in film, it's like we show up on set, we shoot these things and then as long as it doesn't get cancelled, maybe in a year, someone somewhere will get to see it and then we'll read on Reddit how, what they thought of it. And for me, it was, I guess I just had a real frustration of, I just want to be able to make things and get them out there quicker. So with the skills that I had, the obvious kind of pathway was YouTube. Uh, and as I massively enjoyed tabletop miniatures and board games, it was like, well, I might as well just mush these two things together and I'll just make videos about miniatures and all these things and that's when I, I started the first channel which was uh, the tabletop hub uh, and really just covering miniature games that were linked to well-known ips and after doing that for a few years uh, loved it a friend of mine played board games way more than i did he has a much larger connection co uh, collection than i do and um we just started kickstarting more games and so we would have been talking about you know i backed this this week and what are you looking at and oh this thing's coming up and i remember recommending a board game to him or a, recommending a campaign to him uh, more vaguely and i didn't back it but i was like oh i think you'll really like this and it looks really cool so he backed it and he never got the game the company went bust it was a whole mess and there was an element of responsibility on me because i was like well I, i've recommended you buy this and like i've recommended you you put your hard-earned money into this thing and based on my recommendation, you did that. And now you've, you're, you're out money. You've never gotten this thing. And I'm fine. I'm sitting, I didn't back the thing. You know, <laughs> I, I had no problem telling you to back it. And there, I think there's a, there's a real sense of responsibility in that moment where you're like, oh, crap. Like, this is, I need to be more careful about what I do and don't recommend. And I was at UK Games Expo with, with my friend at the time and was really thinking about this whole process and thought, you know what, I, I actually think there's a real gap here for I think not someone to come in and be negative in this space I don't think that's helpful but I think there's a real there was a real opportunity to kind of come in as a backer and review things as a backer as opposed to someone who's getting 
prototype copies and all the shiny things and actually just review Kickstarters based on what their campaign page was like and just be that voice. It's like, hey, I've got the same information that you do. I haven't touched this thing. I haven't played it. I haven't been emailing the company back and forth. So based on what I have in front of me, this is what I think. And this is kind of where where whether I would or wouldn't back it. And that's where should you back it start it. And the whole tagline of it is that the, the goal is to help you crowdfund with confidence. And the way I do that is just through reviewing the campaign and, and doing the risk assessments. Which is a great case study for publishers. So in the show notes, we'll clear a link. Go look at some of those videos because you're going to see a perspective from a backer and the questions they're asking. And then you can then apply those questions or answer those questions with your campaign when when funding it. So I know we're probably going to dig into this, but do you have any kind of like at the top of your head, like some of the the, the five red flags of a campaign? It's like, yeah, I'm out. Maybe we could do different variations of, oh, I'm unsure about this too. I'm completely out. Um, maybe some of those might be helpful for our listeners. But I think one of the, the biggest red flags for me is that they don't have a short explainer. Here's how to play this. I think very often I come across campaigns where they have video coverage and it's that's fantastic. It's great that they've been able to either get creators on board or pay for that coverage to be to be produced. But very often these are like two, three hour long playthroughs that are very minimally edited. And none of us have the time. Realistically, we all have nine to fives. We're all very, very busy. I want to be able to go onto your campaign page and have a five minute, 10 minute max video that is like, Start to finish, here's the broad gameplay loop, here's how this game works, so that I can get the core essence of it without having to watch three hours of seven people playing a game and still not really understanding it. So I think that's a big red flag, is like make the understanding of your game accessible to me. The second one is is shipping, unfortunately. One of the big red flags for me is whenever we you know you look at campaign and the shipping is almost more than the actual core pledge. That's not necessarily the fault of the publisher. These things happen, but it can be something that puts people off. Well, how about this? What if what if it doesn't have any sort of notable reviewers? What if it's just, it's got reviews, but they're all kind of people you've never heard of. Is that a red flag? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I think for me, I don't mind if your coverage isn't from someone that's really well known, as long as whenever I do my research on that creator, they're actually authentic. I think very often one of the red flags for me is whenever I click through to one of these creators, and I'm talking very vague terms, there's no one specific that's coming to mind as I talk about this, but it's whenever you click on that channel, and if I see that every single video is a Kickstarter preview, to me, that's just a red flag. Uh, and it tells me that the the judgment of that creator is probably compromised or it's it's more likely to be compromised than someone who's who's doing occasional coverage on Kickstarters. Very often, I think what, what can really help is that, um, for instance, if you have, I saw this coming up with a campaign a few months ago. It was World War II themed. Um, they didn't have a board game reviewer review the game. They had actually reached out to folks who were in the kind of historical community and they reviewed the game. For me, that was like, this totally makes sense. That doesn't demean their response at all. I think there's there's a lot of opportunities for for publishers to get coverage for their games outside the board game space and still add validity to it. So no, that's not a red flag um, at all. I think one of the things that really helps is is just very clear, concise communication. I think if I'm having to scroll through tons and tons and tons of infographics, and if the top half of your page is is just uh, quotes, it's just like 
I'm gone. I want to make sure that I can get the key answers that I have answered within the first scroll. So I want to know what the game is about. How does it play? What's the core pledge? And if you can't give me those in the first kind of few scrolls of my finger, my attention's starting to wane and it's, yeah, I'm already gone. When you are reviewing these pages, are you doing so on a mobile device or on a desktop? What's your sort of preferred method of browsing? Yeah, so I actually end up doing both. So I'll follow a lot of campaigns or I'll, I'll follow campaigns. I have certain personal thresholds that I'll look for whenever I'm picking out campaigns that I'll, I'll cover. So depending on what I'm doing at the time, usually I'll get the notification through to my mobile uh, or I'll get the email from Kickstarter saying, oh, this campaign's launched. At that point, the first look is probably on my phone. Uh, so I'll probably lift it up my phone, take a quick look through the campaign just to get a very quick understanding of what's going on. And then it's usually across to the desktop so I can start compiling information, getting things ready for the review video. Because I think many people forget that because you're crafting that story on the desktop and you kind of forget most people are going to be looking at this on mobile. So we do a lot of Kickstarter reviews for our clients. And it's one of the first things we do is just open it up on a mobile. And can I read everything? Is the text too small? Because some things can look great on desktop when you shrink them down to a screen. It's like, I can't even read this. It's tiny text. And so that's one thing we we keep an eye out for our clients. Yeah. One of the the strange things, this is a real old man problem uh, and equally uh, a really bad cell reception problem is that, um, listen, it's great whenever you come onto a campaign and they have like beautiful imagery and their text has pretty much been substituted out with images that take up the screen and they look stunning, absolutely stunning. One of the issues I keep coming up against is that the images are taking ages to load. Mm-hmm. So I'll go through to their campaign tab and there's like three lines of text and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a really light info campaign. So I'm scrolling for a little bit, you know, looking at their risks and challenges. And then all of a sudden, it's just, boom, there's like an explosion and I've all the images have just popped in. So I think it's just it's just being mindful of test these things all the time. I remember it's, um, it's that classic radio producer or music producer thing of like uh, whenever they're mastering an album, instead of listening to it in the studio with like the really cool speakers and on the best equipment, they'll like burn it to a CD, go into their car and listen to it on their like crappy CD player. And if mm-hmm. it still sounds good on that, chances are it'll probably sound good in anything. So I think when we're pre- when we're prepping these campaigns, instead of looking at it with our, our super high speed internet and our great desktop screens, I think test it on the thing that's really garbage. And if it still looks really good on that, it'll probably still look good on any screen that you're looking at it on. Yeah, that that's such a good point that I actually didn't understand. And I wish I did. It's one of the one of the biggest regrets that I have, or rather so something I would absolutely do differently, is I would optimize my images for loading speed. And um, I did not realize. So when I went to Kickstarter, I went uh, in uh, July or June 2021 with Deliverance, which is actually about a month from fulfilling. Had a great reception there, but I noticed that we had. It just seemed. I just seemed like we could have had more backers or something. And and people were started sending me messages that showed my images were like the three dots of loading. Yeah. The there are these three. This three dot icon of like you know, loading on a Mac, whatever. Mm-hmm. I saw a bunch of those. I'm like, oh my goodness, my images are so big and heavy. I have images that are just massive and Kickstarter allows you to upload images that are very large. I want to mm-hmm. say, I could be completely crazy, but I want to say they let you load images up to 200 megs in size. Um, I, I, I'll have to take a look at it again, but I just remember it being large. Mm-hmm. Um, 
part of my brain said two megs in size and then another part said 200. And so <laughs> it might be somewhere in the middle, but, yeah. um, you know, the gifts, the, you know, the moving gifts, we had really high quality moving gifts. We had, um, really high, actually one of them was too large. We had a very long sprawling what's in the box images, um, which were kind of the, the main, we had five of those and I want to say three of them were quite large. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had then the how to play, which had the gifts in it and, uh, reviewers and other things. The shipping was a graphic, not a, it didn't have text. It was just like a, you know, an, in, in a sheet and in design that, you know, with some fancy looking stuff. Anyway, I thought, you know, I'm a web developer or rather, you know, I guess I wouldn't consider myself a developer. Alex is the developer on our team. I am just a guy who trained himself and knows enough to be dangerous. And then I hired somebody way smarter than me to actually do develop. But the, the, I thought that Kickstarter's servers were strong enough that it didn't matter what, you know, your, your internet access was like, mm -hmm. but that it would load decently well. And that is not the case at all. No. Unequivocally, it is not the case. If you have bad, slow internet, or you have, you know, if you're at Starbucks trying to load your Kickstarter page on their public Wi-Fi you are going to have very, very slow loading comparatively. And so you should absolutely, it's my long-winded way of saying, I agree with you, Samuel. <laughs> you should definitely optimize those images and think about they're only like 700 pixels wide. I want to say the story is 680 pixels wide. And mm -hmm. then your updates, this drives me nuts, but your updates are like 720 pixels wide. Mm -hmm. it, so the updates are can actually be a little bit more uh, wider than, or maybe it's 760, but anyway, it's, a different there's a difference there it it never centers the image it always like left justifies the image so you definitely need to make sure that the width is correct that's the number one thing that i would have done differently if i could go back personally i think that that makes a huge difference it makes a huge conversion difference because mm -hmm. if somebody that was on the fence goes to your kickstarter page and then it just takes a long time to load then they can't be convinced by all the cool stuff you put together yeah so and so for people who are listening and you want to web optimize your images, you don't know how to, if you have Photoshop, I'll tell you right now how you do it. You go file, export, save for web. And then there's going to be a bunch of sliders there on the bottom left. You can see how big it'll actually be. And you can then select your JPEG and change the, the sort of the, how the size quality of, of the, image, like, the, the quality of the image, yeah. which would then adjust the size. And you kind of want to get that as, as low as possible while still maintaining the quality of the image. And that's essentially how you, you web optimize your, your images. So most people have Photoshop. I'm sure there's, there's other systems that you could probably Google, but that's the kind of quick mm -hmm. and easy way of doing it in Photoshop. And another thing that makes a huge difference when you uh, save for web, save it at the actual pixel width of your, you know, like if it's Kickstarter, 680 pixels wide, save it at that width. And don't, if you save it at 800 pixels wide, then Kickstarter will change the size so that it fits to 680. But the size of that image is the same. The loading of that image is as if you were loading an 800 pixel wide image. And so save it to 680 wide instead of 800 or whatever, and it will load faster. It'll look the exact same. But if you save for web, something that's 800 pixels wide versus something that's 680 pixels wide, it's going to be, you know, whatever, 15% smaller of a file size. And that actually makes a huge difference when you, when you cut. Also, 72 DPI, that's all you need. Um, <laughs> and maximum 50 quality. Some nerdy numbers for you guys. Just write it all down. That's your cheat sheet. 
if there's anything they take away, like that's, that's the key thing. <laughs> Let's talk more about this risk assessment. What factors do you take into account when determining risk? And in particular, is first-time creator a huge red flag for you or no? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. That was one of the first questions I got asked actually in YouTube comments when I started the channel was, oh, so are, are you saying that it'll always be a, you know, a red light for, for first-time creators? Not at all. So one of the, one of the main factors uh, that are contributing to the risk assessment, uh, I call it a risk assessment as if it sounds super official. It's literally just some random guy in Northern Ireland's opinion, right? But there's like a few <laughs> guidelines and checklists. This is so, but for the purposes of this and to make me sound way cooler and, and way more official, we'll call it a risk assessment. But there's a there's a few things that I look for. So if you're a returning creator, um, one of the, the first thing I'm looking at is how many campaigns have you got unfulfilled? Um, and if they're unfulfilled, whereabouts are they in that process? Um, because that's very, very different, right? So like if, if you have uh, 10 projects on Kickstarter and five of them are unfulfilled before you even launch this one and all five of them are still in early development, for me, I'm like, all right, I'm sorry, this is a red light. Like I cannot in good conscience say that you, I, I can give you any more money. Everything could be absolutely fine. Let's. It's very, very important to remember that straight off the bat. It's it's important to remember that everything could be going fine. There's no issues. It's all gravy. But from a perception point of view, if you have five campaigns or however many it is, there's always a tipping point, right? Unfulfilled. It's like I I'll feel a lot more comfortable giving you money if you at least get one or two of those over the finish line. There are some companies that I hate saying that they kind of get a little bit of a pass, but there's some companies that are Kickstarter is their business model, right? Mm -hmm. So like they're used to, they always have five to six to seven campaigns unfulfilled at any given time. Like Simon is, is probably the number one example there, right? They get, they pretty much get a pass on everything because they are constantly delivering, right? So that was the one I was, I was exactly thinking on. Um, mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. They don't necessarily always get a green, they don't always get like a, a hard a hard yes, right? Just because, you know, all they do this all the time, because it's also very, but they've got a higher fulfillment percentage rate or higher ratio or whatever. Uh, yeah, there we go. So they may have a lot out there, but they, they always fulfill at some point. Um, so that's one of the first things I'm looking at is uh, how many campaigns have you got out there? How many, how many are fulfilled or unfulfilled and what stage are they at? One of the other things I look at is what's your communication like? So are you updating backers every month? Like, is it consistent? So even if it's every other month, that's still fine. I'm not looking for like proximity in those updates. I'm looking for consistency. So as long as you're regularly showing up, whether that's because obviously post campaign, it always dwindles. Like I don't think any backer is expecting you to be updating, pushing out updates two, three times a week, every week for the next year. Otherwise, you'd, you'd be doing our head in is what we say up north here. It's, you'd just be sick of hearing from you. Be like, listen, I'm unsubscribing. Just let me know when it's in the post. But as long as you're consistent there and as long as you're replying to comments and queries, I think is another big thing for me. Very often, I will look at updates or look at the campaign project and there's tons of comments and the community, your backers are reaching out to you being like, hey, I've got this query, I've got this question, I'm looking for answers and no one's responding. And to me, that's like, what are you doing? Like these people are, they've given you their money. 
they're looking for your response, they're looking for your support, and you're completely absent. Sometimes that is, it's not always accurate. Some folks, it, one of the big things that I keep seeing is the amount of people who leave comments on a Kickstarter campaign versus how many people have not completed their pledge manager. Those lists are almost the exact same people, but that's, a, that's an issue for another day. Those are two things. I think whenever it comes to first-time creators, it's the, the goalposts are slightly different. So whenever I'm reviewing a um, first-time creator, and there's a few of them I've covered on the channel and have given green lights to, one of them was Cake of Doom, fantastic little card game that, that launched on Kickstarter and successfully funded. It was their first kind of crowdfunding campaign. So obviously when you go to review that, it's like, I've got no previous history. There, there's nothing that I have to go on. So I tried to dig a little deeper, find out that they had registered a, a company in the UK and kind of put legal things in place that would mean that there is some form of security there, which is a, a, a massive thumbs up. But equally, they had gone out of their way to negate risk through their campaign. So if you're a first time creator and I come onto your page and you don't look like you know what you're doing and you don't look like you've planned this out, then why on earth should I be giving you money at all? Whereas with Cake of Doom and with other first-time creators, you're going onto their campaign page and they're like, look, I've got development finished. We've play-tested this for three years. Um, I've, I've found my printing company. We've got it locked in. We're not doing this kind of stuff because it, it could mess things up or we're, we're, we're playing it safe. There's nothing wrong with running a safe campaign as a first-time company and not getting miniatures involved and doing all this like bloat, right? Like there's nothing wrong with just being like, hey, this is just a, it's a simple card and dice game and it, it, it'll it be shipped within a year. And like, I'm overestimating how long it will take. So there's some first-time creators, you're looking at their page and they've just, they've done their research, they've done their homework and you're like, okay, they're answering all the questions I have. It looks like there's nothing risky that they're doing. This seems safe enough. and. In that case, usually what I'm recommending people to, to do is like, hey, this is a first-time creator. They've done their homework. They, this game looks cool. It's not groundbreaking, but it looks like it works. What we're really doing in this moment is what crowdfunding was built for. We're giving you our money because I want to see what your next game is. So like this game's lovely. That's nice. That's, you know, it is what it is. But I'm more interested to see where you're going to go within the next five to 10 years. What's the next thing going to be? And you're not going to get there unless we collectively give you some money and see where you go. So it's a very different playing field, I think, whenever it comes in the first time creators. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one thing that I hate is seeing first created zero backed. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. so you don't want to, you don't. You don't normally frequent our community and now here yeah. you are asking yeah. for some money. It's like, you don't know what you're doing. Just yeah. Tell me how to tell me you don't know what you're doing without telling me you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and it's okay if you've backed like one game and like, it's not hard to just back something just so that we know that you know how this whole thing works. So the, the green flags, number one is clear, concise communication, both on, you, you mentioned it on several different fronts. One was you know, tell me what it's about, how it plays and what the core pledge is quickly. Reminds me a little bit of these three scroll tests uh, in the Jerry, Jeremy Howard interview that we did, number 10. In the first few scrolls, I should know what this game is about, how it plays and what the core offering is that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that when you're kind of doing your, your own risk assessment, are you updating backers regularly? So, you know, one thing I... 
I, I, for myself and deliverance, I've worked really hard to, to make absolutely painfully clear to my family and to everyone else is that the last day of the month is always the day I send a Kickstarter update. That is very important. And you only have one chance to make that good first impression. You don't have a second chance to make a good first impression, right? And so when you, you've got a new person coming in, the, the, one of the biggest challenges that I, that I foresaw would, would be the case when, when I took on the tabletop game development company with Deliverance was over time, I'm going to show people what quality of a company I am and I'm going to earn a particular reputation and I'm not going to easily be able to change it. So if I decide, oh, you know, I'm busy and I I can't get the update out today and Mm -hmm. I give people wishy-washy updates. I mean, it's been like actually about two years. Uh, We finished our campaign July 8th of 2021 and it's almost exactly two years later. I have given out almost 24 updates, 23 updates at this point. And they have been on the last day of every single month updating people with the news, good, bad, and the ugly, including when I moved. 1200 miles from Southern California to central Texas, I still gave an update and it was really hard. Some of those times were really hard, Mm -hmm. but I'll say that, that, you know, I'm trying to build a reputation of someone who's trustworthy with the next project. And so I I think, uh, you, you also mentioned something I want to get into a little bit more and just ask you about. So the risks and challenges section, you, you mentioned certain things that are def that definitely should be added there. Like, you, have you determined your manufacturer? You've clearly done your research and homework and whatnot. You, you've used that phraseology. What are you looking for in the risks and challenges section? Yeah, this will be where some of the folks listening to this will either write me off or not. I very rarely will I actually read the risks and challenges section at all, mainly because I think your your past as a creator tells me more about the risks and challenges that you face and your transparency of them, as opposed to this little section at the end of a Kickstarter campaign. For me, the risks and challenges section at the end of a Kickstarter campaign is more of like, oh, forgive me for saying this. It feels like it's more of a marketing tool, right? It's more of like, oh, and you know, look at us, we're so good. Like we've done this so many times and oh, we've we've fixed this thing and whatever. I think for first time creators, it's invaluable, right? But if you're a 10, 15 or a five time or whatever time creator, that risks and challenges section is semi-redundant because if I want to know what the risk and challenge is behind this, I'm just going to look at how you handled everything else previously. It's still important to fill it in, but there was, uh, yeah, just... We're talking about red lights and green lights. So it's it's a traffic light system mm-hmm. in essence, right? So we've, we've got like the red lights with one, which is like, don't touch this until they get these other things sorted or, or whatever. If it's a green light, it's like, hey, this all seems cool. I don't see any issues here. Sometimes we get oranges where it's like, honestly, guys, something just doesn't feel right with this. Or this could be fine, but they have like three projects outstanding. It looks like they're going to fulfill them, but they've still got three projects outstanding. So it's not it's not a home run. It's kind of a, you're kind of taking this into your own hands. One of the campaigns I remember reviewing, I looked into their past and they had said that their community interaction wasn't great. Like their, their communications with their community wasn't good because the guy who ran the company was doing everything. And I think for a lot of game creators, that's the case. You're wearing all the hats. And sometimes we just got to realize sometimes it's it's time to hand some of those hats off to other people. And they'd said in their update in one of their 
other games of like, hey, we're going to hire a community developer or we're going to hire a community manager. Uh, like we've heard you, it hasn't been great. Um, and they, they owned the mistakes of their past, were transparent about it and was like, hey, we're going to fix this going forward. Now, in their recent campaign, there was no mention of any of that. So, but that that's a clear thing that you would put in risks and challenges of like, hey, in the past, our communications has been awful and we did this and we fixed it and now we've been getting like a higher approval rating or whatever, like our community likes it. I think there's a there's a lot of nuance that doesn't fit into the risks and challenges section, but I think put in the big hitters and I think the, the key thing is just own the mistakes that you've made, be open and transparent about it. Most of your backers, listen, some of your backers are going to be angry if you make a mistake no matter what. But I think if you are accountable to it and say, hey, look, we messed up and here's what we're doing to fix it. And like, here's how we're rectifying it going forward. And we're sorry. It's like, don't pad excuses around it. Don't pad it out to make it sound really cool and nice from a PR and marketing standpoint. Just be like, we messed up. We're sorry. Here's how we're fixing it. Here's how we're going forward. Because people will either stick around or they won't right? Like people just make a snap judgment because there's other games they can play. So I think the risks and challenges section of a, of a Kickstarter campaign, the more games you ship, for me, the less relevant that section becomes. Uh, I think your past catalog becomes your risks and challenges section, really. I think what new, the first time creators could potentially do or could consider doing is putting your partners in there we've partnered with mm -hmm. shipquest who've fulfilled so many games and they've got a reputation they've been consulting with us we've partnered with the crowdfunding nerds and they've helped so many creators fund so it, by mentioning your partners i think that adds a bit of social proof in terms of the back end of okay we've mm -hmm. kind of connected with people who have a lot of experience and have been able to guide us through this process and assist mm -hmm. us and getting everything set up so if you don't have much uh, in terms of, oh, we failed and this is how we fixed it because it's your first project, then certainly yeah. consider putting in your, the people you've partnered with to help get make this a reality. Yeah, I, I think like you said, the manufacturer as well, you know, mm -hmm. it's a, a big deal. Like there's a lot that I don't know about manufacturing, but boy, am I glad I partnered with Longpack, you know, because yeah. they, and that's what I said. It's like, I trust that I picked correct partners and um, that helped a lot. Yeah, I think. I think, Sean, exactly what you're saying is especially if you're a first-time creator you don't need to give out names right of like the if it's not appropriate of the companies you've partnered with but just tell us you've got these things sorted so if if the game tell us where you are in development i think if you're a first-time creator and you're coming onto the kickstarter page and then the risks and challenges you say hey development's finished like we're we're ready to hit the print button on this that's a massive green light um mm -hmm. equally if you're not there it's okay just tell us like we're 25 percent away through development or whatever but just be open, transparent. Don't be afraid of being open and honest about it because there's nothing worse about like hiding that kind of stuff and then backers finding out later and then them feeling like their trust was broken. So just be open and honest. And yeah, say that you've you've got your printing company sort of all the other stuff that, that just helps alleviate some of those pain points for us as backers. Great points. So now I, we spent quite a long time on these various red flags, risk assessments, and, mm. and that sort of thing. Do you have, uh, so your personal biases for the types of games that you like, do you look to cover games like that? As a reviewer, do you generally stay positive about the content you're covering? And do you, do you look to cherry pick content that it appeals to your tastes for that reason? Or do you purposefully pick things that are not to your taste? Mm, that's a great question. It's a big question. Uh, and I will try my best to answer it succinctly 
because uh, there's a lot in it. So because the great thing is that we're, we're, we're talking to fellow peers. So there's going to be things that we all get, right, as opposed to we're talking to general public. So uh, from a creator standpoint, uh, when I launched Should You Back It, I knew that there's, we'll say dozens, it's probably hundreds, right? But there's dozens of campaigns launching every week. I physically can't cover them all, but I'm also, in essence, launching a brand. So I need to make sure that I'm covering the titles that I know will, one, pair with with the direction that I want to go, but also, two, will equally lend itself to, like, that people are going to watch. Um, So the first campaign I ever covered was Slay the Spire. Uh, I think at that time, I, I, I could be making this up, but it felt like that was, like, the most followed kickstarter or whatever in history i can't remember if it was but i I feel like some people were saying that so it was the first game first game that i covered um it 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 went incredibly well uh, and kind of gave the channel that kickstart so once i covered slay the spire one of the channels that i very quickly started watching religiously every week was shelf clutter who is fantastic resource in essence every week he covers the the games that are launching that week on crowdfunding regardless of the platform uh so mainly because I'm not going to know about every game that gets launched. And he's a fantastic resource of being like, hey, where are my blind spots? Where are the ones that I didn't that I didn't know about? So there are some titles that I know are coming up because they're from companies that I'll follow. Like Elden Ring was one that um, I knew about the moment Steam Forge announced it. I was like, that's an immediate. I'm following this. I want to see what, what the crack is with this. Um, but for me, I think whenever it comes to choosing which titles to cover, I have a bias towards... Um, games with miniatures in it. I'm a sucker for miniatures and my friends mock me for it. Uh, I just think they're cool uh, and I like having them on the table. So I have to always like soothe that part of my bias of like, just because it has miniatures, Sam, doesn't mean that it's not immediately awesome. Um, so there, there's that part of it. And I, I try and steer clear of that. But I think aside from that, whenever it comes to the um, titles that I'm covering, uh, I try and balance it so that um, there's usually a follower number. If their campaign has a certain amount of followers, I'm like, okay, enough people are interested in this. That means that I should also now be interested in it. Uh, so there always has to be a pre-validation. The tricky thing about this, and I think it's important to hear this, that's solely a content creator thing. So it, it would be great. I would love to be able to sit here and tell you that, listen, I will cover every campaign, no matter how many, fo- if it has one follower, it's worth me covering it. I work a nine to five job. I come home and uh, most of the time I have to try and like get these videos out within 24 hours and I, I just can't physically cover everything. So th- those that's one of the markers that, that I have to rely on to figure out, is there an audience for this game? So that if I put my time into this, that one, you're going to see a benefit from it, and also I'm going to see a benefit too. Uh, because in essence, what I'm doing is creating a piece of content that's going to help that number of followers that are already really interested in your game figure out whether this actually is a game that they want to follow mm-hmm. uh, and, and want to back. So that's that's one thing, but I, I do try and balance that out with games that, that don't have a big follower count. Uh, and I'll use resources like Shelf Clutter. I watch him every week. Fantastic. Um, And as he's going through every game that's about to be launched, if there's one that has like 20 followers, but I think this sounds really cool, I'm like, okay, no, this seems interesting. And I'll add that to my follower list or my follow list, see what happens when it launches. And if I think, actually, I think they've got a really novel idea with this, or it seems like they've covered their bases, 
then it's it's going to get covered. But from a sole marketing and audience growth, um, I, I I just have to be selective uh, and I, I just can't cover everything. But I do try and make sure that genre-wise, there is a bit of a mix. Are you familiar with TradeProp Analytics? It might be a useful tool for you. It does show you the latest projects that are released. So you could check that every day and just see what what's coming up. I don't, Andrew, do you know if they have a way to see if anything is kind of trending in terms of pre-campaign? Um, you know, pre-campaign, I don't believe so, but what I like about it is that they have this, um, comparison tool for the amount that, you know, grossed today mm-hmm. or the amount that has grossed totally the popularity today, the popularity of certain, you know, you can, you can filter by accessories or RPGs yeah. or tabletop or other things like that. You can even, uh, you know, look for particular types of games. Like I'm looking for dungeon crawlers right now. So, you know, uh, or I'm looking for dungeon crawlers that have four X mechanics. It's really kind of cool. <laughs> they even have a popular tab. So if you do want to create content and something's live, you just hit the popular right. tab. Oh, look, these ones are currently popular. I can create video content on that. But yeah, I think yeah. that's, that's interesting. And I think people need to understand this is that um, as a content creator, you are going to try to tap into streams that have um, that are popular. And it's yeah. something that people need to be aware of that if their game is big enough, it's just going to be easier to get people to, to cover it because they're going to want to, they're going to want to cover it and tap into it. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.